Well, we come to the last talk, and I would, first of all, like to thank you again for the marvelous silence, which I do appreciate enormously, and I'm sure that that will always bring a blessing on to Montreville. The retreat houses where silence is kept, the three I know best, they're always full, whereas so many retreat houses are now sort of spiritual centers and have all sorts of activities, and oddly enough, uh, people who really want to love God begin to stay away. I would again like to thank Freddie DeVere very much for making the recordings. I've been rather busy like he has because I have to listen to each one after each talk to be sure that there's no heresy and to blush at the bad language. I don't know what the poor friends who've been listening in or will hear the tapes later will make of it all. I hope they won't be too shocked. As I've said in previous tapes, just like the word bastard is a term of endearment in Australia, dams and bloodies are fairly common in my country and have a cert certain virtuous air. <laughs> we have a splendid story which I told years ago on a tape of a mother, baby saying to his mother, why ain't the bloody train coming? And the mother said, darling, I've told you not to use that vulgar word ain't. Anyways, I hope the retreat that I, was a great gamble for me to pass on to you my own prayers because I copied these bits of Cardinal Newman for my own sake and I wouldn't like anyone to think that I've anywhere near exhausted um, the quantity of wonderful things he wrote. He wrote about 600 Anglican sermons and 600 Catholic sermons and about six books and there are 32 volumes of his letters, all of them fascinating. So really, what I've said, like taking the words that we had to be mature uh, when speaking of the Holy Spirit, I took that because it helped me. It's not the only thing. He preached the most marvelous sermons on the Holy Spirit. It's rather unusual to end a retreat with purgatory. In fact, it was only two weeks ago I was talking on purgatory when Father Stokel rushed in to say a tornado was just about going to hit the house. And so he said, we ought to all go downstairs. And I said, no, we're in purgatory and I'm staying here. <laughs> now, um, I was asked to make some recordings for another firm some time ago, and the man wanted to call it Words of Encouragement for the Elderly, and it was going to be called The Golden Years. And I said, that was a horrible phrase, golden years. We old people are second-class citizens and we're kicked around. Nobody knew, knew we've done anything in our lives. And I wanted to call it the golden years my foot. Uh, uh, <laughs> but, the, but the publisher wouldn't allow it. But in that tape, I did make a suggestion that just like young people today wear all these lovely mottos saying Hong Kong police and God knows what on their chests when they've done damn all, I thought we oldies ought to wear a few messages to cheer people up. I was going to have one on my back saying, I saw General Pershing. <laughs> or I've got an aluminum hip or whatever it is. I was an air raid warden in the war. I kept my, put my tab over here upside down so that the German pilots would read it and be duly impressed. <laughs> but we poor old people, all we've got now is purgatory, so I think it's worthwhile thinking about it and rejoicing that the young ones here will join us later, we hope. Now, I take 
purgatory, because that was one of the things that Cardinal Newman was shocked at when he was young, and also because, as with everything else, most people never preach on purgatory or say anything about it, and he, with his extraordinary ability to find wonderful things to change our faith or to enlarge it, and to make purgatory a joy. And so I thought I'd end, for those reasons, on this subject. And Cardinal Newman takes the text, which you won't have time to read. Each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the tally be completed of all their brothers in Christ. Then he starts off by saying that he can't promise to give any full explanation of the book of the Apocalypse, that this very profound book, written in ecstasy by the last of the apostles, St. John, that ever since St. John died, most of the secrets revealed there can't be explained. It was a personal vision of John. He was swept up into heaven, and we now can only take the texts as we see them. I think it's an important point he makes there, because nearly everybody who's slightly deranged always goes to the apocalypse, and then they go off in an ambulance. <laughs> But Newman's quite right, but he does give us the, the, the important points about purgatory so that we shouldn't be disturbed, that we should see it for the wonderful thing it is. And the first point he makes clear is that the words of his text are said about the martyrs. The church had been persecuted for 261 years. Thousands of Christians died for the faith heroically, and therefore St. John, who was the only apostle who wasn't a martyr, uh, he uh, first mentions the next world when he says how these martyrs cried out. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the spirits of those who had been martyred because of their witness they bore to the word of God. They cried out at the top of their voices, how long will it be, O Master, holy and true, before you judge our cause and avenge our blood among the inhabitants of the earth? Each of the martyrs was given a long white robe, and they were told to be patient a little while longer until the quota was filled of their fellow servants and brothers to be slain, as they had been. So the first reference we get from St. John about the world when we die is that the martyrs were there waiting patiently, or were they advised to wait patiently. We are told that they were at rest, and we are told that they were robed in, the, in a white robe to signify innocence. So therefore, certainly the first entrance about purgatory will be the saints will be there when we go, or maybe. And as Newman points out, there does seem to be some kind of social link in purgatory that you aren't on your own. You're an individual, but you're with your friends or with your fellow martyrs or with those who are in the same line as yourself. So that's um, a point that I found consoling. Now, you can't limit it to um, martyrs because in four, the 15th chapter, 14th chapter of the Revelations, we get another statement, including us all, where I heard a voice from heaven say to me, write this down. Happy now are the dead who die in the Lord. The Spirit added, yes, they shall find rest from their labors for their good works accompany them. 
You see, that's the most encouraging statement, because these are happy that they're at rest. That's the great word used, they're at rest, and what's more, their good works have come with them. We always think, like we think conscience is always nagging and never praises, we're inclined to take the, have the idea that God is always going to find fault like a schoolmaster. Uh, and on the contrary, here, the first two references in, Re in Revelations are that they are at rest and that their good works will be with them. And all of us, I think, can presume, at least looking back, that we have done good works. We've forgotten them, we don't remember them now, but we did do them. And nothing will be forgotten with God. So just as our sins will be remembered, our good works will. Then you've got this very th curious thing of the holy cells swimming around in flames, which Cardinal Newman found so unpleasant, and it came in, the, this imagery, quite late in church history, and I would have thought, in a sense, it's a corruption. The only text that they use to say that we'll be burnt like that um, is in the first letter to the Corinthians. And there, St. Paul is talking about quite a different thing. St. Paul is talking about when you'll die, you'll be tested. And tested in the fire like we test gold in the fire. It's not a question of being fr sort of fried sunny side up. No, it's a, the, the curious thing is, it is you test gold and you test silver and copper in a flame because they, are not a, they can withstand heat and are not damaged. So really St. Paul was not talking about Angel Gabriel stoking up and us all roasting there. The only thing he did say was that the fire which will destroy all the dross and the hay and rubbish round about won't touch gold or silver. So that therefore, though there may be in us and we'll be the first to want it, to get rid of all that's horrid, there's no real evidence to say there is a tremendous amount of punishment. St. Peter's the only one who refers, when our Lord went down to hell, he descended into hell. St. Peter, in his first letter, I think it is, mentions that our Lord went down to see those who were being punished for the sins they committed. Therefore, punishment is certainly possible in purgatory, though I, we always keep on feeling that it'll be a very willing punishment because most of us will feel we want to wash and brush up before we go to meet God. So, but otherwise, the emphasis really is not on punishment at all. And what is so beautiful is the thing in Second Corinthians, First Second Corinthians, where they talk about purgatory as home. Therefore, we were, this is this is what Paul wrote. It's so marvelous. Indeed, we know that when this earthly tent in which we dwell is destroyed, we have a dwelling provided for us by God. A dwelling in the heavens, not made by hands, but to last forever. We groan while we are here. This is where we are groaning. We groan while we are here, even as we yearn to have our heavenly habitation envelop us. This it will, provided we are found clothed and not naked. While we live in our present tent, we groan. We are weighed down because we do not wish to be stripped naked, but rather to have the heavenly dwelling envelop us, so that what is mortal may be absorbed by life. We do, we want to go to heaven with our bodies and have a sort of extra body put on top of us so we'll still be the same. God has fashioned us for this very thing and has given us the spirit as a pledge for it, so God's guaranteed that. 
Therefore, we continue to be confident. That's what you ought to leave the retreat with, the word confidence. Therefore, we continue to be confident. We know that while we dwell in the body, we are away from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. I repeat, we are full of confidence and would much rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So the only word there, St. Paul, having said be confident, he then says that we're, this is the place where we'll feel weary. Um, the extraordinary thing is that when we get to the next world, we're going to be at home. And I do feel that one word home should give us, in our old age, considerable comfort when we think about purgatory. There is only one reference that was in Maccabees uh, to a very strange thing where we're told it's a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead. And that, it's in Maccabees, uh, these wretched soldiers were not innocent. In a fight against uh, the, the um, Persians, uh, they had uh, behaved badly like your troops and ours did during the war. They had taken away pagan armlets and all sorts of pagan decorations from the soldiers on the other side, and when they were killed, they all had these on. So naturally, there was a certain worry what would have happened to these men who had stolen pagan armlets and put them around their necks. And therefore, the Maccabees, the, the, the chief, he then had a money. He took, has a collection. He then took up a collection among all his soldiers, counting 2,000 silver drachmas, which he sent to Jerusalem to provide for an expiatory sacrifice. In doing this, he acted in a very excellent and noble way, inasmuch as he had the resurrection of the dead in view. For, it, for if he were not expecting the fallen soldiers to rise again, it would have been useless and foolish to pray for them in death. But if he did if this with a view to the splendid reward that awaits those who have gone to rest in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Thus he made atonement for the dead that they might be freed from this sin. It was their particular sin that he was praying about, though the church rightly says it's a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from sin. Cardinal Newman points out uh, that in the cases that we have in the gospel, it looks as though there's an intermediate state between dying and seeing God. Because the good thief our Lord said to him on the cross, today thou wilt be with me in paradise. Now paradise was the Persian word for the Garden of Eden where Adam began. It wasn't seeing God. And therefore, it does look as though the good thief went into an intermediate state. Our Lord would be there with him as a man, uh, but there he would rest and wait until something. We're told also that in the parable of Dives and Lazarus, when the poor man died, he was taken up to Abraham's bosom. Well, I don't think Abraham's bosom would be very pleasant for all eternity. And so, again, you feel that this was a, a, a halfway house, that he was, he'd be gathered up by Abraham and would be with his um, Jewish colleagues again. But it looks as though all that St. Paul wrote, there will be an intermediate state and Paul actually says in one place that after death, we, when we die, we often haven't completed the work we wanted to do. And it may be possible in heaven, in purgatory, uh, to learn to pray, to learn the language, 
to get our t uh, frame of mind completed for the moment when we will see God. So therefore, I'd like to end on that note that Newman only gives us what's in scripture. He certainly held what the church holds. And of course, at the end of his life, he wrote this remarkable little oratorio, The Dream of Gerontius. I'm very attached to it for a special personal reason that once when I was a little boy at school, I got two prizes and by mistake they gave me the two vol volumes of this, they gave me two identical volumes, one for each prize. Ivanhoe by Scott, I nearly fainted, one's bad enough. <laughs> and I was burst into tears and I went to see the headmaster and I said, I've got two of the same book and I cried a bit. And he said, oh, I am sorry and what a mistake and all that. And then he said, well, all the prizes have gone now, you I haven't gotten it for you. So I cried a bit more. And then he looked on the floor and under the radiator was a little red book with a beautiful coat of arms of a college on it. And, and he bent, went down and pulled it out and he said, oh, have this. <laughs> and it was the dream of Gerontius by Cardinal Newman. And of course I liked it because it looked like a little prayer book. And at mass, which we had every day when I was at school, you weren't allowed to do anything but read your prayer book during mass. So I read the dream of Gerontius and got away with it with choruses of devils, and it was a lovely thing I knew it by heart. So I've always been very touched. Newman wrote this just before he became a cardinal. It was, no, about ten, five, seven years before. He wrote it in five days on bits of envelopes, and it, of course it's the, Gerontius is the Latin for geriatric. So for any of us who are feeling that way, inclined or going that way, it's a dream for us. It describes dear old Gerontius coming to the moment of death. And it's made up of four, so five canticles, or choruses. And it starts off with the priest praying round Gerontius' bed, and Gerontius not too unhappy, but knows he's off. And then all of it, and while, it's, while he's still alive, Newman made, made most of the lines rhyme. But once Gerontius is on the way upwards, then suddenly he changes into blank verse, and you feel that Gerontius has lost weight, he's got rid of his body, and he's like the shuttle, he's off. And, it, and he looks down and sees the, hears the priest praying around him, and just down below. Then there's a glorious moment when all the devils appear, and they're very outspoken and rude. And of course, um, what's so interesting, all, you'll find all Newman's sermons are all in it. The devils all shouted out, low-born low clods of brute earth, they aspire to become gods by a new birth. That's the very thing that also our retreat we've thought about, that our Lord came down to make us holy so that he could take us up as his brethren to become divine. And the devils are all screaming about that. They have a whole lot of noises off. And then when they've got, when he's, he's past them, then all the choirs of angels appear. And that's where they sing Newman's great hymn, which we've thought about and we've mentioned in the first and that is praise to the holiest in the heights and in the depths be praised in all his works most wonderful, most sure in all his ways. If, there are a whole lot of choirs and they all keep on singing it. And the last one is the, the most beautiful, the one they now sing in church. The, the, verse, the stanza goes, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love that flesh and blood which did in Adam fail, should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. 
and the Blessed Sacrament comes in, and that a higher gift than grace should flesh and blood refine God's presence and his very self, an essence all divine. Newman, at the end, Gerontius makes a, like a moth. He's drawn to the, gods, the fire of God and he gets burnt slightly. And then the, the angel guardian says, now you rest there and I'll come and fetch you tomorrow. And there it ends. Well, Newman wrote it, why, I don't know. He had it acted once by a primary school, just the, the little children said the words, and he did eventually publish it to help a new Catholic magazine that was coming out. And then it lay idle for many years until Elgar, uh, the great composer, was so struck by it uh, that he set it to music. And it was, of course, and is still, I think, a very famous oratorio, they did it last year in Canterbury Cathedral with a full orchestra. To take the part of Gerontius was one of the, 50 years ago, was the great thing for any tenor. If you can get Elgar's music, which is extremely good, it is a marvellous prayer. And it's really quite a great poem in its way. It was Cardinal Newman's last act. So we leave him there, um, uh, the old man happy to die going home, that's the thing, having confidence, as St. Paul said, his good deeds there to be with him there, and if there's any punishment, what he himself would want if he was going to be led eventually to God's face. So I'll end the retreat at that point, um, and I, do, I can't give you my address now, or it'll be on the records, and I'll be pestered by all sorts of crackpots who want to tell me that I should clean up my language. Uh, but I can tell you, if you come, I'll take you on a beautiful tour of the dead, all around my own area where I live. I take you first to where Gray wrote his famous elegy in a churchyard. You can see his mother's grave, and you can see all the urns and animated busts that he referred to. Ten minutes from there, I can give you a nasty shock by taking you to the grave of William Penn. Everyone thinks he, he was in Pennsylvania all his life. He was only five years or so in Pennsylvania. He was buried in England outside the first Quaker house with his wife and about five children were all lying there waiting for the last Trump. <laughs> What's so funny is that Pennsylvania wasn't called after him. It's called after his father, the Admiral. Um, he wanted to call it Sylvania, and Charles II said, no, you must call it after your, my, your father who saw service with me in the Navy. Well, we'll say a Hail Mary there. Then we go on to G.K. Chesterton's grave, which is quite nearby. Chesterton, who's the only poet I know who wrote a poem on dust. He wrote a marvelous poem ending with Our Blessed Mother, where he said, so God before his paladins by his own honor swore to make the loveliest face in heaven of dust and nothing more. And then I'll take you to see Winston Churchill, who's buried quite near there too. Um, always moving to see where he lay with his, all his, the Marlboroughs. And then finally we'll go to just near Birmingham where Cardinal Newman's buried. Extraordinary, he's buried right in the like in Detroit in the middle of an enormous motorworks. The siren goes and all the men come streaming out and in the middle there's about five trees and the little house which the oratorians own and where Newman wrote so many of his books. And there he lies in, his gra in the grave, quite unknown at Rednall, and he wrote his own obituary, which says, from the shadows to reality. And that's really the note that we'd like to end the retreat on. <laughs>